I'd like to encourage this session of the Dhamma talk to also be part of our practice uh, so that uh, for me it's a practice certainly to uh, create and um, offer some reflections and for you as listener it's a practice as well that that, uh, both of us are practicing being present with the process And when there's a quality of presence, it helps the Dhamma talk unfold. It helps it happen. It's not just a one-way process of the speaker, me, saying how it is. It depends also on the quality of presence in terms of what can happen. So I just want to start by saying that I remember the very first... Dhamma talk I heard from our primary teacher, Ajahn Chah, the, the Thai forest master, who's now passed over. Um, in the 1970s, he had come to Oxford and he was giving a talk to some students, which I went along to listen. And it was wonderful. It was a, a really incredible experience to hear this seeming to me very enlightened being giving uh, reflections on the Dhamma. It felt like having been in a desert and coming across an oasis. It was very nourishing, very uplifting, very powerful. Ajahn Chah had a very powerful, empty but joyous presence. He wasn't messing around. He, He would want to deliver his messages as uh, directly as possible, which was, wake up. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> Where are you going? Where do you think you're going? <laughs> so as I listened to this talk, I kept feeling this is really good. You know, this is, uh, I was really enjoying it, and I was, had this internal commentary going on about how great it was to hear the Dhamma from Ajahn Chah. Uh, And then as he finished, he just said, well, if you've been sitting there thinking this is good or this is bad, you haven't been listening properly. So I thought, well, that's that's really good. (laughs) So it is something about, I mean, it's also a great uh, line for if you were giving a Dhamma talk because it sort of, in a way, helps abdicate responsibility. <laughs> it's your practice <laughs> in terms of how it impacts. <laughs> but it really is quite a profound uh, encouragement for us to listen, whether we're listening to ourselves or we're listening to someone else, listening, trying to listen beyond our reactions and our judgments and our views and how it was before our comparisons, how it should be, what I think it should be. Um, how we colour, project onto what is here and now. So this encouragement to just keep listening, so uh, being mindful, being present, uh, is actually the practice of this depth listening. Listening into the heart, listening into the awareness, the emptying out of our strategies, our views, our ideas. This evening I'd like to take the opportunity to lay out a little bit the template of this retreat, the Wings of Awakening, the the, um, five spiritual faculties, the five Indras, uh, and just reflect around them so we can get a bit more of a sense of the map, the template that we're working within, that we're drawing on. There's a line from last night we began the retreat by reciting some of the protection chants. And one of the chants, which is a recitation on the faculties of awakening, there's a, there's a very interesting line within that chant, which goes, Maka hatakile sawa patu patitam matang. 
which means I always like to reflect on it, I always like to begin a retreat with it, because I feel it's a very important orientation for practice. It literally means the activity of path breaks up uh, that which obstructs. Maga meaning path, hatta kilesa, hatta means to break up, kilesa, Kiles means obstructions, that which obstructs capacity for our rootedness in presence, in awareness, and well-being. And then the second line, patu upati tamatang, patu is the fruit, upati means to arise according to the tamatang, according to the dhamma. So this, if we approach practice from feeling that the sense of I've got to somehow do this thing called practice, I've got to awaken, um, it can feel quite burdensome. You know, particularly if we get into the maps of Buddhism, there's so many things to learn, so many aspects of the Dhamma to take on. It can actually feel quite overwhelming. But the encouragement in this in this uh, refrain is that actually, in reality, it's not us so much that's doing it. We bring our int- intention to bear upon the process, but in actuality, it's the application of path activity. It's moments of applying aspects of the path that works to break up that which obstructs or that which generates suffering or discontent or constriction, agitation, stress. And the fruit of the path activity, the fruit, the freedom of heart, arises according to its own law. It's not something we can push or, or demand or cajole. There's a sort of a, a kind of an organic unfolding to the fruition of the process. We can quicken that, but we can't really predict the outcome. We can't control the outcome. So in a way, if we really um, take that as a, as a frame to work within, what it's encouraging us is just to do, uh, apply moments of path activity here and now, and you know, that's what we do, and we let the rest unfold as it will. So so in some ways that makes it accessible, doable, not necessarily easy, but it means in this moment we can apply an aspect of the path. We can actually, you know, to some extent, uh, and in the context of this retreat where we're focusing on the wings of awakening, the the five indriyas, we we can apply one of these indriyas, we can uh, generate one of these aspects of the path. In the, each of these five injuries has four aspects. And um, <clears throat> there's something very tempting about the Buddhist lists and also something a bit deathly boring about them. So I don't really want to just reel off the list, although I do find, personally, I do find it a very satisfying map sometimes to to look at how they interweave but I'd like to pull out some of these aspects for us and one way we can look at the five injuries and the four aspects is like a hologram that they interweave and they work together it's not like one does number one and then goes to number two number three number four number five you touch one you're touching all of them they're resonating interpenetrating each other when you practice mindfulness, you have to have some faith in, it, in that practice. You have to have some application, some energy. Uh, mindfulness will in, inevitably begin to ripen into samadhi, into gatheredness. And as there's a gatheredness of heart, inevitably whatever we bring our attention to, uh, wisdom will operate what is the, the nature of reality here and now? What is the nature of our experience will be illuminated? What we're grasping, where suffering is, how to let go, will become clearer. Without mindfulness, without samadhi, that's not so possible. 
So these Indras or Indriyas uh, are Indra was uh, they're named um, they're they're aligned or the the they have the implication of an aspect of the god Indra, one of the great Vedic gods, Indra. And Indra is known as he's Indra is the god of one of the god that rules the Tartinsa heavens, apparently wherever that is. <laughs> but Indra is known as uh, or archetypally, and I think that's probably a more comfortable way to look at it in our modern idiom. But Indra is known as the one who implied in the god Indra or in the archetype of Indra is the is the faculty of of um, power of strength. Uh, the controlling principle sometimes, that which has strength in it. So these injuries have the connotation as as faculties of mind that have strength, that have power, that can guide the current of our life, that can guide the stream of consciousness. And the Buddha made the analogy in the same way as the Ganges inevitably slopes to the east, inevitably runs from the mountain over the plains and inevitably merges in the great ocean in the same way as the strengths of these five faculties, spiritual faculties develop and strengthen as they become powers. They inevitably ripen into the realization of Nibbāna or liberation, or freedom of heart. And the first one being sadha, which usually translated as conviction or confidence, can also be translated as faith, can also be translated as trust. Where do we place trust? How, you know, what is, what, what do we trust in life, quite a tricky question sometimes, isn't it? Where, who do you trust, or what do you trust? Classically, this this quality of trust in in the classical teaching is is connected with the uh, the trust in the triple gem that we've been reflecting on and chanting about today. The three aspects of trust, and the fourth one being the trustworthiness in the in the uh, in the endowment of virtue, one's own virtue or the virtue of others. So one can, Kimisaro started this morning, one can look at this capacity for trust more externally. Historically, it's often designated as the trust in the, the awakened one or awakened ones, that, that that's possible. Trust in awakening, trust in teachings that awaken, contemplating, at least being open to teachings. I mean, it's not implied that one just has to blindly believe, but at least being open to take on teachings, to contemplate them, to work with them. To trust in others that are a part of Sangha, which, you know, that we may people we may hang out with that we feel some sort of resonance with. If they say something, it might have a little bit more weight for us. Practitioners, friends that we feel are wise teachers. <clears throat> and trust in this capacity for, for ethical living, virtuous living, trusting that in ourselves, trusting that, that we can come from a place no matter what circumstance that is ethical, that has that's, that's the, the, the right response according to a deeper attunement with the, the wish not to harm ourselves or another, to respond you know, true to what is right, is virtuous, not distorted, not manipulative, not angry, It doesn't mean to say one doesn't necessarily feel anger, but knowing the action, knowing that we, what, what, what do we trust? Can we trust that we can respond according to uh, the most appropriate uh, way of 
being in the world that, that can maintain an ethical base. And these are like, in a way, these aspects, when they become more internalized and perhaps not quite so, they might be connected with a historical or an external person or tradition or lineage or teachings, teachers, others that we might see in the world, a Nelson Mandela or a Dalai Lama that we trust as, as virtuous, we might have look at the compass of their life and that might help us guide our life but really the point of this uh, this first indriya is to internalize it so that we know directly where we can align where we can place trust yeah. so the more subtle meaning is as we've been contemplating this morning is can we trust in our capacity for awareness? Maybe we don't know what to do in a situation. Maybe it's unclear. Maybe we might sit here thinking about it all. Maybe we just go around in loops, you know, realizing that we're not really just trying to... The, the instrument that we're using to think our way out of a problem is part of the problem sometimes. We could just go around reactive loops, but maybe if we bring awareness, presence to the dynamic, to the feelings, to the whole dynamic that we're experiencing, the relationships, the reactions, as we hold awareness, as we trust that more profoundly, then perhaps there might be a, a quantum shift can happen. Resolve can happen, healing can happen, insight can happen, illumination can happen. Because in a way we're trusting a deeper seat of the mind, of the heart, that which is connected to an an intuitive wisdom. So trusting this first aspect of the refuge is really this Training is a training to trust in this listening, the deeper listening. And trusting, you know, perhaps we could say the deeper aspect of faith, trusting the Dhamma as teaching is really the Dhamma, as was talked about this morning, is just life, the flow of life. When we trust life as it's unfolding, really open. We have faith to life, we open to life, we let it in, we let it flow. It's, it might wobble us, it will wobble us, it will perhaps even tear us open. We don't know what to expect when we're not just negotiating with life with all our strategies. We don't know quite what will unfold, what, where it will take us. And the heart that trusts its, the Dhamma is able to open and trust what comes that it's something we can work with. And even if we can't, then it's an edge that we can enter into. This faith, this willingness to feel, to be connected with the flow of life and the sangha to, to practice with whatever emerges in that openness, in that faith, that fundamental faith. Faith to life. And because of the, the fourth aspect, the root of virtue, we can trust ourselves. We can trust that we can be in the tumble of whatever might we might be opening to and know that we can we have a root in understanding that our intention for our action is important. And it shapes our experience. So faith, you know, faith is in Buddhist practice is not blind. It's not taking on beliefs that one just adheres to without any discernment. Faith is always balanced. Faith is the one wing of the first indriya. The last wing of the fifth indriya is wisdom. Do these two always balance each other? The wisdom, the discernment, the wisdom is that which is open. Maybe one's open to life, open to the moment, 
open to the flow of our own consciousness, feeling, perceptions. But there's discernment happening. There's an engagement of contemplation, of investigation. This is the faculties of wisdom to investigate what's happening now. Holding that awareness with innate wisdom that has intelligence in it, that has discernment in it. So with, with, you know, with faith, without wisdom, can become very misguided. We can believe things, we can take on and believe, believe our own minds, our own thoughts, without any discernment to know perhaps you know, wisdom discerns, wisdom discerns that whatever we think, whatever our view is, it can only ultimately be partial. It can't be the totality of reality. It's a snapshot. So even the views we might hold about others, the world, other people will have very different views. <laughs> We're looking at the same thing because we can all only have very partial views, very thoughts, partial thoughts. But perhaps more importantly, the, the views we hold about ourselves, even thoughts we hold about ourselves. You know, we frame ourselves as this kind of person or that kind of person, and often in a way that can diminish, constrict, undermine, or inflate if we have the other kind of a tendency. So, discernment, wisdom faculty knows that any view is partial, knows that uh, the truth of our nature is not any designation in thought or perception, in time, in role. So discernment is able to operate within the faith to open to life. Too much discernment without faith and we can just, you know, they can... People can, some people have very, very strong capacity to discern, to, one can almost become, without that sort of more willingness to, to, to really just like be and be affected by life. In a way, faith implies also being, allowing yourself to be affected. Sometimes a lot of discernment, one can just, you know, become very aloof, very, falsely detached can see the problem in everything can see the shortcoming in everything can see the relativity in everything and so as a meditation practitioner one can have a lot of discernment but sometimes not feel you know become cool or cold or not really fully in life somehow it's not it's not balanced yet emotionally divorced from the experience of life. Too much faith and we just get washed around. Just don't know quite where to find our orientation. So as, as, there's, as there's a commitment to the faith to be more fully embodied, more fully incarnated, to really open to the Dhamma of our life, to trust the Dhamma of what life brings us, our own unfolding, it can connect us to this second indriya, which is our energy. It's a virya, the, the, the faculty of energy or effort, vitality, vigor. Often, you know... <coughs> Our, you know, our energy is often our, our capacity to be rooted in life and to feel vitality, to be connected with the flow of life is it's often quite um, wounded somehow. <laughs> quite complex stuff around our basic energy system. You know, either, either we can become very uh, driven... You know, our, our culture is one where our energy is very aligned with where we're getting to all the time. Uh, so we can have ways that we just drive the system, the body, onwards to get where we're going, to get what we need, overriding you know, perhaps tiredness or deeper processes. 
that need to have careful attention. So I often, when we come on retreats for many people, myself included, I can be very driven sometimes. I just feel so tired because I'm because I'm not I've in a way not been in tune with my natural bodily energy. You know, just start to falter and throw down a cup of caffeine. <laughs> Um, it's very <clears throat> interesting to live where we live in rural KwaZulu Natal, where the rhythm of the day is much more aligned to the the rhythm of the um, light and the dark. So when it gets dark, you really feel everything just shuts down. No one goes out. It's just the stars come out. Gets very dark body shuts down, it's time to rest. And in the, in the morning when it's light, there's a lot of activity, and then at night everything's very still. And so there's something about that natural rhythm that allows a, a more restfulness, a more rootedness in the embodied experience. But, you know, in our, in our cities and our urban life and our contemporary cultures, a lot of overriding those natural rhythms. Just keep going, just keep going until the other other end of the drivenness of our energy is the sense of collapse. So come on retreat, we just suddenly just feel, whoa, it's just so tired. Because <laughs> the body's been you know, paid enough attention. That's the, so it's important sometimes on retreat just to, to rest, take time out to rest so one can recuperate or feel. And maybe have in this week have moments of really feeling what it's like when the energy body is balanced. In terms of the classical teaching the, of the effort, it's always framed within cultivating this this moments of path activity in each moment cultivating balanced effort and it's it's framed as what's called the four great efforts the effort to to avoid the effort to overcome the effort to develop and the effort to maintain to avoid and overcome unskillful states to develop and maintain skillful states this is and this is actually a training. It's a, a training of discernment. Again, the wisdom faculty, the investigation faculty, to know when, like in meditation, we started this morning to develop the skill of knowing when to withdraw the mind, the attention from pathways that are actually uh, undermining, unhealthy, uh, destructive distracting from more coarse dwelling in fantasies in negativity in lack of self-worth patternings that actually deplete our energy withdrawing or give a false sense of energy that then leads to a collapse learning the skill of actually avoiding mind, certain mind states not repressing but when there's a strength of mindfulness of attention, we can maybe return to those kinds of states and be able to transform them rather than just be sucked in like a whirlpool. So it's a skill in, in a way, shoring up and maintaining wholesome energy, chi, or positive energy. And then maintaining, and sometimes even in life, knowing what to avoid, to avoid certain situations. Sometimes we don't have the strength to be in a situation or in a, in, in a relationship that's very negative or in, a, in a, having contact that you know, Buddha would encourage, knowing how to skillfully withdraw um, and restrain sensory experience, sensory input. That's actually negative, like you know, just sitting glued to the TV for hours, for example. <laughs> Things that can drain you, drain your energy system. Uh, kind of some activity. So this is this to be able to avoid, to turn away, and to maintain. It's, a, it's sort of the skillful use of a of a, of the no energy, of being able to to know when it's important to set a boundary. 
And sometimes it can feel like in meditation we shouldn't have any boundaries, we should just be open and just, you know, but it's not really about being one way or another, but about finding balance. So these indriyas work to find balance. So knowing when it's important to, to, to hold boundary, to say not to go there until there's some strength. When there's enough strength, then one can go where one will and one won't be overwhelmed. And then on the other side, to know how to cultivate wholesome states of body and mind, like what we're doing today, to cultivate moments of attention, to cultivate awareness of breath, to to cultivate presence to how it actually is. It's very skillful because so much of our tendency and our habit is to be distracted, to distract ourselves, to be unconscious, to be repressive, to be reactive in our life experience, to be driven. So it's actually very hard um, to just be present. But this cultivation and development of skillful states to be present, to be present with an attitude of kindness, to be present with patience, to, to get up in the morning and meet all of those subliminal states of mind that will just want to pull one down, fear and anxiety, to be present to that. So this, in a way, is developing uh, strength to... to to develop and to cultivate and maintain wholesome states of mind. This is considered one of the great, great efforts that the Buddha encouraged. Alongside that, the effort to, to withstand. I find that very helpful, to withstand that which is painful. Sometimes in life, we're in situations where we can't do much about it, about maybe being criticized or being betrayed or or experiencing uncomfortable feeling in sickness or feeling despair at something. Sometimes every strategy we use won't fix it. And or people are doing you know, like working again in the outreach programs that we've been working in in KwaZulu, one meets sometimes in really difficult situations, corruption, nepotism competition between NGOs for resources, betrayals, very difficult behavior that you can't really do much about except to withstand the impact and not be not default to aversion and reactivity and hatred. <laughs> and to trust again, this faith, trust one's own ethics, one's own, um, to know where to trust in those kind of dynamics. How to maintain trust in yourself, in your response, and to withstand the forces of the world sometimes, which can be very deluding, very um, powerfully wanting to sort of wash one away, pull one down very seductive in terms of wanting to react and act out of negativity. So to be able to withstand the uncomfortable is one of the great efforts, an aspect of efforts, to know to the effort to let go, the effort to renounce, the effort to make in the monastic chain, they call it the effort to use to use the basic requisites of life without having to have the best of everything, but being able to the effort just to be content. It's a kind of an effort in a certain way. It's an attunement. It's not necessarily a huge effort, but it's an attunement to be in this moment as it is. So these adjustments of how how we can be here in a rooted way with our energy in balance and the effort not to make effort the most subtle effort the effortless effort in meditation often <clears throat> we make too much effort 
You know, we're, we're trying to do it. We're trying to get there. We're struggling with what is. And, you know, and sometimes that's appropriate. Sometimes strong effort can be very useful. You know, the Buddha talked about the kind of effort sometimes we use, can use a lot of will, not as a strategy the whole time, but to really... He made the analogy of like a, a, a strong man wrestling a weak man to the ground. Sometimes with some states of mind that really just are very destructive or some actions, it's important to know how to use will just to say no. But that's, that's a bit like you know, just having one gear that you're driving in, which you know, sort of can burn up the engine. So it's also important the most subtle effort is when one just... It's, not, it's just present, simply holding presence, very subtle, and just allowing awareness to work with, to be with how it is, to unfold, to reveal, to illuminate. All of these efforts, whether from the most subtle or sometimes really strong effort, they're balanced with the fourth wing in the Indrias in the five Indrias, the template of the five Indrias, which is the capacity for samadhi or gatheredness or calm, presence. So effort is guided by samadhi. Otherwise we're just efforting in a way that is unaligned with a deeper rootedness in the presence of the moment. So samadhi is that capacity to be gathered, to be focused, to be rooted, to gather in the bodily, heart, mental energies into presence. The samadhi calms and balances effort. When there's samadhi, then the effort finds its own natural balance. Does it need to be a bit stronger, straightening the spine, staying with difficult does it need to be softer opening, releasing it's samadhi the gatheredness that really informs and without effort there's no samadhi (laughs) so they balance each other if there's not any capacity to bring attentiveness here and now there can be no accumulated gatheredness of our energies we just disperse, we're just running here, running there, minds running off, bodies unconscious, painful. And this samadhi, this gatherness, is a lot of what we're doing on this retreat is actually developing this capacity, which is harder to, to cultivate in the busyness of everyday life. It's easier to get a feeling for this embodied awareness, this integration of what's called the three main streams of our energy, mental energy, heart energy, feeling energy, and sensation, bodily energies. As they integrate and gather in this moment-by-moment training of attention. When effort or our energy and samadhi become aligned, then the body, the heart, the mind becomes infused with presence, infused with well-being, knows a rootedness in well-being. We know how to access well-being. It's not dependent upon the sensory experience of the world. So whereas the uh, faith is connected with what's called the four aspects of faith, the triple jewel in this endowment with virtue, with ethics, and efforts connected with the four, cultivation of the four great efforts to avoid, to overcome, to develop and maintain. Samadhi is connected with the four, cultivation of the four, it's called the four jhanas, which we can perhaps explore on the retreat.
four jhana factors. Jhana factors, that which helps support this gatheredness. Wisdom is connected with the exploration and the insight into the Four Noble Truths, understanding the nature of suffering and stress, how it originates, and the release, the letting go, the dissolving, the freedom from suffering, the recognition of the liberated heart. The middle, you know, the kingpin really of all of these, none of these uh, aspects of spiritual faculties or the indriyas would be possible without the middle one, which is mindfulness, which is connected with the, the four foundations of mindfulness, satipatthana. And the, the Buddha said this about mindfulness. just as all the footprints of all legged animals are encompassed by the footprint of the elephant and the elephant's footprint is reckoned their chief in terms of size in the same way all skillful qualities are rooted in mindfulness lie gathered in mindfulness and mindfulness is reckoned as their chief So in the, in the heart, what actually brings these indriyas into balance, what can discern and know, what can actually illuminate, it's mindfulness. It's like, mindfulness is like the light switch. You know, when there's no mindfulness, it's like we're just running around in the dark. We don't quite know. We're lurching to one thing, to another. We don't quite know what we're looking at. Yeah, so. Jin Cha would actually say, when there's no mindfulness, one's actually insane. <laughs> one's actually crazy in a certain way. Or, or if we're not crazy, we're addicted to, to distraction, to, to this, the fevered way of just going about one thing after another. Often in reaction to a deeper level of pain, distress, or stress. Or lack of rootedness, lack of well-being. It's not even that conscious, but it sort of drives us. So mindfulness is this capacity to illuminate what's, what's here, and, here and now. It's that capacity to bring attention and to hold attention, to sustain attention, to sustain awareness with the breath, with the body, with the feeling tones, with the sensations with the mind states, with the moods, with the flickering of mental consciousness, with the intentions of the heart, with the skillful states, the unskillful, the ambivalent territories, the habits, the reactions. Mindfulness begins to discern usually the flow of what we experience within the four foundations, body, mind, heart, Usually we erroneously identify and shape the sense of self around that flow. I am this thought, I am this feeling, I am this bodily sensation, I am this habit. In the, in the practice of meditation, mindfulness begins to replace that identification with rather than I am, with just this, there is this experience here and now. There is illuminating with mindfulness, with the light of mindfulness, with awareness. There is this experience of the bodily sensation, the breath, the feelings, the thoughts. And they're dhammas, they're part of this nature. So with mindfulness, we become rooted again in the Buddha, the awareness, contemplating the Dhamma. Rather than being a self reacting like crazy and identifying with the flow of the khandhas of our experience, we're rooted back in that fundamental place of faith, the heart of knowing, the presence of the Buddha here and now contemplating the way it is.
way sensation is, the way feeling is, the way mental faculty is, the way the shaping of self happens through identification. And as mindfulness discerns, wisdom sees into and investigates and releases from attachment. There's a fullness, a fullness with uh, being filled with this quality of presence, of samadhi, energy aligns, well-being can emerge, clarity can emerge, appropriate response within the world can emerge. So the Buddha said to his disciples, what is most valuable? The gaining of the four continents, the gaining the control of the whole world, or the gaining of these qualities of the five Indriyas and the four bases of faith. This is in the sutta called the Raja Sutta, the Sutta of the King. He goes on to say to his disciples that gaining the four continents is not equal to one-sixteenth of the gaining of these qualities of the heart rooted in faith. The gaining of these faculties that when well developed and brought to fruition inevitably like the Ganges that flows to the great ocean, inevitably in the ripening according to the Dhamma will bring about the realization of Nibbana, of the heart that can taste its own peaceful nature, its own timeless nature, its own indestructible and immovable nature, here and now. At the end of our day of practice, may we dedicate the blessings from our moments of faith, energy, mindfulness, gatheredness and wisdom. These positive faculties of the heart innate to each and every one. We allow the blessings from our practice to flow out into the world around us, touching all beings in whatever situation, those near and far, 
in the dedication of well-wishing, in the wish for freedom from suffering. Allowing the mantra, the heart mantra of Kuan Yin, Om Mani Padme Hum, to resonate out, touching into all the realms of existence as we dedicate the blessings from our day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.